All right, good seeing everyone. Glad that you're here this morning and those that are joining with us online, especially if you're our guest this morning, we welcome you and we hope that you will take the time to fill out welcome, excuse me, welcome information for us. You can do that by writing, just texting FL Respond, one word, FL Respond to the number provided for you, 833-571-3475. And that way we can have opportunity to follow up with you and hopefully have a, a meaningful conversation about uh, uh, maybe decisions that the Lord is laying on your heart, whether that is uh, perhaps to become a follower of Christ or to become a part of this church family as, as a result of being a follower of Christ, knowing that faith is always exercised in community. But we would love to have a conversation with you about that. And so we will look forward to that opportunity. We're going to return this morning to our uh, series uh, in the book of Romans where we left off back in uh, December. We came through the Advent season and uh, did a couple of other things in recent weeks uh, for encouragement and challenge. But now we want to return uh, to Romans where we left off there in uh, chapter 13, what I think is a very timely topic. I want to discuss this morning saints in the political crosshairs, and we're going to look at this chapter in its entirety, in the great cultural or great political divide that has come to characterize the cultural chaos in which we are finding ourselves today. Uh, my observation has been, just through reading, watching social media, uh, it seems that uh, when it comes to professing Christians in this particular kind of cultural chaos and political divide, my observation has been that uh, Christians, professing Christians, tend to gravitate uh, towards one extreme or another. That is, they either gravitate towards a full embracing and perpetuation and promotion of the partisan processes that, that are in place, or it's the other extreme. They jump to the other ditch and they have withdrawn themselves completely from the cultural structures, the cultural systems that uh, are in place, the political systems that are, that are in place. And that word political just means how things are being done, how things get done. And so there is the other extreme where some have just, uh, just withdrawn from those systems and those structures completely isolating themselves, insulating themselves, making for themselves a particular kind of, of sequestered and uh, little sequestered group that, that has really become sectarian in nature, just us and no one else. Now, neither one of those can be justified biblically. In fact, I, I would never understand why professing people would want, to, um, uh, would want to entrust partisan politicians uh, with the things of God, thinking that partisan politicians are capable of handling well the things of God or perpetuating the things of God to be. That's a little bit like asking John Gotti to be over law enforcement. You know, it just, it just doesn't work. But the other extreme has no basis as well, this idea of withdrawing from society. Because both of those, while some may try to justify them with those responses with particular proof text, that's really all you can do. You can, you can kind of proof text some of those positions, those extremes, but to do so is to neglect and to reject the greater overarching theme of 
the body of Christ being salt and light in the world. Now, to be sure, Scripture does speak in the reality of politics. The people of God in times of old and times in the New Testament, the people of God have always found themselves dwelling in a particular kind of political context. The Bible, Scripture, is not apolitical. And it's naive to say, well, that, you know, the church, we, we really don't. Uh, one thing I'm grateful, Bobby, doesn't preach about politics. No, I preach about politics every week. But I preach a politic of Jesus. Because that's what we are to be about. We recognize, we have embraced the idea that the kingdom of God is a kingdom not of this world. And so we don't look to the world and we don't look to the systems of this world to be, to be the kingdom of God. These are temporal kingdoms, secular kingdoms. These are kingdoms that, that will fade with, with time. And so Paul in these scriptures that we're going to consider this morning, whether it's, whether it's here in Romans 13 or, or whether it's in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, which we will look at under the first point. When, when Paul talks about the, the relationship of church to governing authorities, the people of God to governing authorities, Paul doesn't say, and Paul's not campaigning for a particular kind of government. He doesn't say that our response is based upon whether we like the government, whether we dislike the government, whether it's a legitimate government or an illegitimate kind of government. He makes no discerning notations as to whether it's being led by your party or the other party. Paul focuses in on us as the church, the people of God, that given whatever the political context might be, he talks about the things we can, we can control. That is, how we think and how we, and, and how we live as the people of God, holding forth another way. The way of the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. What Paul says here in Romans chapter 13 in regard to our relationship with governing authorities is really in keeping what, with what Paul has said uh, in his Corinthian letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 12. Paul says, what do I have to do with judging the world? Paul's concern is the behavior of the church at Corinth. What do I have to do with judging the world? The world is behaving as the world behaves. The world is behaving as an unregenerate people. My concern for you as professing followers of Christ who are the representation of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. My concern is you, your behavior, and the witness that you are holding forth to the world. And so as we come to chapter 13 of Romans, and as we look at this matter, regarding us as followers of Christ and our, in our relationship to governing authorities. The first thing Paul alludes to is his theological motivation. <clears throat> now, I want to read these first seven verses, but I want you to pay particular attention 
to what Paul says in verses one and two. He says in verse one, every person is to be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you have to have, do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a servant of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing, that is government authorities. It does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a servant of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Pay to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, respect to whom respect, honor to whom honor. Now, what I want you to notice, the premise is really established here. The theological premise is established in the first two verses. But did you notice in the reading of those seven verses, God, the name God, appeared six times? That is, Paul is writing as he is processing, as he is holding forth our relationship as the people of God to governing authorities. He says, listen, God is the central character. God is the central character in this story. When it comes to our relationship with governing, uh, governing authorities, God is the central character. God is the primary authority. God has ordained government so that there might be structure, so that there might be civility, so that there might be order. He makes no discernments here as to whether or not, thank you, Brian, he makes no discernments here as to whether or not the government is good, whether it's bad, whether it's moral, whether it's immoral. We have examples throughout the entirety of Scripture of how God has used pagan nations and, and pagan rulers to still accomplish his purposes because God has the ultimate authority. Think about it, the prophet Isaiah. He warned the people of God that God God was going to use pagan nations, how 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 God used Assyria, how God used Cyrus to carry out and perform his purpose, the ungodly, the pagans. Even Jeremiah warned the people that God will use Babylon against you to bring about his judgment. God will use Babylon, a pagan nation, a a pagan people to bring forth his purposes. And so Paul's thinking is, you know, all authority, these these authoritative figures, these these governments, they, they come and go and what they have, what has been ascribed to them comes from God. I mean, even Jesus stood before Pilate as his death sentence was being pronounced. You know, Jesus' primary concern was still the purposes of God. Pilate, 
You have no power except that which comes from you on high. Now, Pilate would have taken issue with that. This idea that all authority comes from God. Nero, who was emperor at the time of, of, of Paul's writing, would have taken issue that, that all authority comes from God. They, the Roman emperors thought they were divine themselves. But Paul's conviction, his theological conviction is really rooted in his understanding of, of the created order. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6, he says, yet for us there is only one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for him and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Now understand, Paul's primary concern, we already know this from Romans, Paul's, Paul's primary concern is the expansion of the gospel message, the proclamation of the gospel. And so Paul's thinking is we do no favors by being a thorn in the flesh to the government, that we as the people of God, there is no, there is no gain for us in being a dissenting presence. that our primary concern is for the furtherance and the spreading of the gospel message. It is a missional strategy that Paul is holding forth. I find it interesting that he says, therefore, those who resist authority, therefore, whoever resists authority, verse two, has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Things of God, we are not to be leaders of an insurrectionist movement. The people of God are not. Paul makes it very clear that, that progress is not going to be made by revolution for the things of God. Paul, Paul listen, Paul is not naive. Paul is not naive to the things of this world. Paul would have been very familiar with the armed rebellion and that's recorded in Acts chapter 5. Paul would have been very familiar with, uh, with the armed rebellion of, of Phidias and, and Judas the Galilean against the Roman oppressors and, uh, Roman oppressors and in Judea. Paul, Paul was very familiar with the utter failure of these rebellious movements among the people of God. And because of that, Paul could have very easily seen the Jewish rebellions that took place in Rome, uh, three of them significantly in six, uh, 67 AD, 115 AD, AD, and the final one in 132 AD. That final one led by Simon, uh, Simon Bar-Oka, it had devastating impact upon the Jewish people. I mean, when, when that rebellion started, when Simon Bar Kokhba was leading this, this rebellious movement in Rome, listen, it brought about such a, such a fearful, overwhelming response that Rome tried to annihilate the Jewish population. 
So Paul's thinking is, he's thinking subversively. Paul's, Paul's subversive. He's saying, we've got to think about the great, listen, these kingdoms, these rulers, they come and go. We've got to have a vision, a greater vision for why we are here as the people of God and what we are seeking to accomplish. I mean, Paul has a, because of his conviction regarding who God is and the sovereignty of God and the ultimate authority of God, Paul is a gospel visionary. Nowhere is this kind of subversive strategic thinking more evident than over in 1 Timothy. Listen to what Paul would write to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2 in verse, verses 1 and 4. He says, first of all then, I urge that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made in behalf of all people, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul says, listen, for the furtherance of the gospel, I need you, the people of God. Prayer being our language. Prayer being our power source. I want you to pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people in all kinds of places so that we'll have all kinds of favorable results. See, it's not unusual. It's not without precedent that God's people would pray for pagan nation and pagan people. In Jeremiah 29, in verse 7, listen to the words of the prophet to a people of God that have been exiled. The prophet said, seek the prosperity of the city. Seek the prosperity of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord in its behalf, for in prosperity will, for in its prosperity will be your prosperity. In a climate of peace, you have the best opportunity to spread the gospel message in a way that is undeterred. The prayer that Paul says we are to offer, all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people in all kinds of places, listen, that is not a preferential prayer for those you prefer and those you don't, as opposed to those you, it is not a partisan prayer it's for a king, and we're praying for a king or a president as long as he represents your party. It's not that kind of prayer. It is a prayer for all people in all places at all times. Listen, it doesn't matter if it's your party or not. It doesn't matter if it's your preference or not. Kingdoms come and go. Kings come and go. Do you know who the emperor was? When Paul wrote to Timothy, Nero. I mean, you have historians, Jewish and Roman historians like Tacitus, Suetonius, Cassius Dio, who, who wrote about the things that, that Nero did to Christians. For entertainment, he would, he would throw them to wild animals, watch them be torn apart. He would cover them in oil, cover them in pitch. 
impale them on stakes so that they would, and then set them afire so that they would provide light in the evening for his gardens. That, that was the man that was emperor at that time. Paul said, you pray for him. You pray for the authorities. God, under his authority, has given them authority for order, for structure, for maintaining civility. We don't want to be a part of the disruption of that because we have to have a vision for a greater mission that is motivated by theological conviction that God is the authority. Then Paul talks about some practical obligations that are ours as the people of God. He says, owe nothing to anyone. It's an old proverb here. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For the one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not for this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. He gives us this, this admonition there in verse 8, to owe nothing to no one. It's not just practical advice. But Paul is setting it up here as, as, as an exception that, uh, preparing us for the exception that, that we are to love one another, not just one another, not just the people of God. But he makes it clear in that last half of verse 8 that we are to love our neighbor as well. We're to be a loving presence in the world. We, we are seeking to fulfill a debt that cannot be fulfilled. But in seeking to fulfill it, we fulfill the law. When we are seeking to love our neighbor, you know what it does? It takes care of all these other commandments. When you, are com you and I are committed to the systems, to the structures that have been established by God's authority to what it means to be the people of God and what that looks like, listen, when, when you're seeking to love in that way, all these other commandments take care of themselves. When we properly love one another and love our neighbor according to the purposes of God, listen, then you don't commit adultery. You don't murder. All these other commandments fall into place. But here's what Paul is saying. This is our proactive response in the life of faith. This is a proactive life as the people of God. I fear in our day and time and really this goes back to even my earliest days as a believer and followers of Christ. One of the things that, 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 that really set me on my heels was to see the number of Christians that live fearfully. They seem to always live in, a, in kind of a defensive posture and a defensive mindset. Like they're, like they're down in some kind of, of foxhole hoping the, hoping the enemy doesn't get them, that the attack doesn't come against me. Listen, we're not victims, we're victors in Christ Jesus. And nowhere in Scripture are the people of God seen as a defensive people. We are an offensive movement. When Jesus said the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, he was talking about us as a, as a people who are so, we are an offensive movement. The gates of hell 
cannot stop us. And love is to be our proactive life. That's how we engage the world. And listen, this is a rescuing kind of love. If we understand with the theological conviction of who we are, if we understand the strategy, the missional strategy, a strategy that is ours as the church, Listen, that changes your understanding of of love. Our love that we're portraying to the world, that we're holding forth, living our life according to the design of God, the structures of God, how God has designed life, that's the most loving thing we hold forth to the world. Not accommodating the world. Compromising the very thing that can bring them life by trying to accommodate their emotions and their feelings. We have let the church, we have let the culture Redefine this word love and what it's supposed to look like. We have allowed ourselves to be so influenced by the culture's definition of love that we've kind of embraced this kind of mamby-pamby, emotive, something that accommodates the feelings of others. That rescues no one. Our witness as the people of God in a secular age, in a secular world, in a pagan culture. Ours is to be a rescuing presence, a rescuing love that holds forth another way of life, a particular way of life, a way that brings richness, a way that brings fullness, a way that brings vitality to life instead of despair and hopelessness that the world has. I saw this kind of love portrayed recently in a very vivid way. If you've ever watched, anybody, uh, anybody watched Last Chance U Netflix series? Used to be about JUCO programs, football programs. Past two seasons have been uh, featured around John Mosley, coach at uh, ELAC, East LA Community College. And, and it's been, past two seasons have been about basketball. And with this, this, the whole premise is these are, these are kids that are down on their luck. For whatever reason, they've been kicked out of D1 programs. They're trying to make their way into it, but they have all kinds of disciplinary issues, just, uh, just all kinds of social dynamics in their, in their background that have affected them. Uh, but, but they have this coach at ELAC, East LA Community College, this basketball coach, John Mosley, who, who is an incredible coach, he, he, he's a worship pastor as well, but he's an incredible coach. And he's had every opportunity to leave, to go to bigger programs, better paying, paying programs. But he has chosen to stay in East L.A. That's where he was raised. He knows these kind of kids. He was one of them. And he has stayed in that community to try to have a formative impact in the life of these student athletes. Episode five of this last season, there was an event that caught my eye. Probably his most talented player this, this year is a young man by the name of Shamar. Most talented athlete on his team. Shamar decided he was going to miss two days of practice. Just didn't show up. Finally comes waltzing in on the third day, having missed two days of practice. And Coach Mosley meets him there and says, Shamar, where you been? And he said, well, Coach, that's what I've come to talk to you about. He said, uh, It was my birthday and I was tired. So I decided not to come to practice. 
He said it was your birthday and you retired, and that's why you don't show up to practice. Yeah, and that's what I, I want to talk to you about it. And he said, I don't want you to be upset with me. Coach Mosley said, does this, does this look like I'm upset with you? He said, you're a grown man. You're 21. Just turned 21. You're a grown man. You make a grown man decision. Now, there's consequences that come with every decision you make. He's like, no, that's what I, I, I he said, man, I'm, I'm, he said, man, I'm willing to run. I'm willing to do whatever I want to, uh, whatever I need to do. I just don't want to lose minutes on the floor. He said, no, Shamar, that's, that's not fair to everybody else that's been at practice. Do you understand that? Shamar said, no, why? He said, it's not fair because your teammates have been here every day at practice and you made a decision, a grown man decision not to be here. And so those that have been here, those are the ones that, that get to play. Cuts away to Coach Mosley making fun of him. He's going around the gym asking anybody else if they've had a birthday that he's missed this season, going up and hugging them and everything. Oh, I'm so sorry I missed your birthday. So he comes back to Shamar and he says, would, would it have made a difference if I'd told you happy birthday? Would you have shown up to practice? Shamar said, well, I would have at least known you cared. Coach Mosley was spot on in his response. He said, that's fake love. You want me to get all up in your feelings. He said, you want me to get all up in your emotions. He said, that's fake love. He said, real love, real caring is giving you a system, a structure, a framework that you're expected to be accountable and to be responsible so that you can become the kind of man that I know you can become. That's real love. It's a rescuing kind of love. That's what we are doing in the world. When we embrace the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus, we are living our life a different way, not accommodating the feelings and the wants of the world. It is holding forth a rescuing kind of love that gives them other possibilities built upon accountability and responsibility to the living God. Final thing, very quickly, Paul holds forth in this relationship that we have with governing authorities. Paul comes at it from an eternal orientation. He says in verses 11 through 14, do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us. Remember, salvation, as we've discussed in Romans, is so much bigger than, than just your little personal experience, just me missing hell and making it to heaven. When Scripture, especially Paul, talks about salvation, it is the full redeeming of the created order. Yes, we are caught up in that redemption, but this, the salvation of God has to do with the full redemption of the created order. He says this salvation is nearer to us than we first believed, and it is for you. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let's rid ourselves of the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let's behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness. This is all things that are associated with behaviors of the night. 
not in sexual promiscuity and debauchery, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the, for the flesh in regard to its lust. Paul assumes, Paul assumes that his audience knows that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It's not something that is calendared. It's not something that you can uh, predict by holding the morning paper in one hand and the Bible in the other hand. This is something that, that realize that this is something we realize is going to occur like a thief in the night. And so we live with, with a readiness. And as we have this eternal orientation, realizing that the kingdoms of men will pass away. And as we are wired and geared with an eternal orientation in our life as to what we do with our time and our energy and our resources, this means for us that our best energies and resources are spent not in the partisan processes, not in the building up of military might, not in the debates of, of economic systems, but our best energies and resources are spent being a people of the way, holding forth the politic of Jesus. The politic of Jesus, the politic of justice, the politic of mercy, the politic of grace, the politic of redemption. And in doing so, we are saying by our witness and our presence, I understand the strategic missional call of God upon my life. And it is not me that is in the crosshairs, but it is a lost world that is in my crosshairs. Let's pray together. Our Father, how often it is that we find ourselves as strange bedfellows with this present world. When the mandates of Scripture are clear that we are to be a separate and holy people, that we are, as your word says, a peculiar people, a particular people, expected to hold forth in, in different ways your design for life, the way life is supposed to look under your authority. Father, realizing that the greatest and most powerful political office in this world is to be found in the life of a single believer who is devoted to being the presence of Christ where their feet are. And as we embrace that, as we know that, as we practice that individually, then collectively, we as your church are an offensive force to be reckoned with in this world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.